Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. This is a picture of Woody Guthrie. He was born in Okama, Oklahoma. July 14, 1912, his father was a successful businessman and the start of Woody's young life seemed promising, but events in his early childhood changed that trajectory. His father, seething in racist and isolationist politics, joined the Ku Klux Klan. Hatred became the air that the young boy would breathe, the family home was destroyed by fire when Woody was a child. And then in a separate event, a few years later, Woody's little sister had her clothes catch on fire and perish as a result. His mother was institutionalized for a mental and nervous breakdown, dying shortly thereafter. Then came the Great Depression. Then came the Dust Bowl. Woody Guthrie dropped out of high school and headed west like a character in one of John Steinbeck's novels, an Okie on the road to California. He walked, he hitchhiked, he rode boxcars, always with a guitar on his back and a harmonica in his pocket, like in this picture where he is busking on a New York subway. He was 30 years old when the U.S. was pulled into World War II, and he volunteered immediately, joining the Army and later becoming a merchant marine. He despised the Nazi. No doubt a great deal of his animosity was the working out of his anger toward his own father. And it was during this time that he started painting words on that old Gibson guitar, this machine kills fascists, it says. He became a force of musical protest, free speech, outspoken defiance against everything from government overreach to the plight of African Americans, the greed of Wall Street, and the corruption of religion. He didn't tour. His granddaughter, Annie Guthrie, says he rambled. California, Texas, the great Northwest, New York City, he would see a picket line or a bread line and he would just stop and sing the folks a few songs. He didn't care about making money. He only wanted to share his message, even though it got him labeled as a communist. He said, I'm not a communist, but I have spent most of my life in the red. He played gigs with Pete Seeger, Lead Belly, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and would go on to become a lead inspiration for Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Judy Collins, Jackson Brown, Natalie Merchant, Dale McCurry, Chris Christopherson, Allison Krauss. And you might know a few of his songs. He wrote 6,000. Pastures of plenty. I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Deportees. Hard traveling. 
There'll be no church tonight, which is my hysterical favorite and inappropriate for this crowd. And of course, this land is your land. This land is my land. Woody died in 1967. He was only 55 years old. He had had a decade-long struggle against Huntington's disease. It's what took his mother's life, though it was unknown at the time. Huntington's disease is this inherited, ruthless combination of Parkinson's with Alzheimer's. Woody Guthrie wasn't especially religious. Though one of his mother-in-laws, he had three, introduced him to her own Jewish faith, which he loved the tradition of and the complexity of it, especially its perseverance through the Holocaust, which he bore witness. And he wouldn't give you two nickels for the institutional church. But he said he had two people in the world that he admired, Will Rogers and Jesus of Nazareth. And I think you heard that in the song we sang. When Jesus came to town, working folks came around and they believed what he had to say. But the bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on a cross and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Guthrie was not wrong with that line. The heinous collaboration of moneyed interest and religious power, in fact, is what laid Jesus Christ in his grave. And then there is that other character that Woody Guthrie mentions by name in his song, Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus was a man, a carpenter by hand. His followers were true, sometimes brave. But that one greedy coward, Judas Iscariot, he laid poor Jesus in his grave. Now, if you start working your way through any historical list of infamous traitors, Guy Fawkes and his gunpowder revolution trying to blow up English Parliament, Marcus Brutus, stabbing Caesar in the back, Aldrich Ames, a CIA operative who sold U.S. secrets to the Soviets for a decade during the Cold War, Benedict Arnold, Major General in the Continental Army, Commander at West Point, George Washington's most trusted officer, maybe the greatest commander in U.S. history, but he was a double agent nonetheless. But no one reaches the notorious fame of Judas Iscariot. In Hebrew, his name was Judah. As common as John or Mike or Robert today, in Greek it becomes Judas, or shortened sometimes to Hey Jude. And when it comes to this particular character, Iscariot is always, always, always attached as a surname because no one else by that name wanted to be confused with him. Judas, with Jesus, is the main character in today's lectionary reading for this Palm Sunday, as it is within Woody Guthrie's song. Guthrie said that Judas was a greedy coward. That was his unholy motivation for selling Jesus out. Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover. He had shut down the temple operations. He had condemned the religious leaders in a way that would have made even old Woody Guthrie blush. Beloved by the common people, but hated by those with power, Jesus was untouchable, unless he could be assassinated. But with those 12 burly Galileans around him all the time, that was not quite possible. Unless 
they could capture Jesus and his little band of protectors unaware. If only they had a mole. If only they had an insider who could relay to them information about Jesus' whereabouts when he was vulnerable. Per Woody Guthrie, Judas Iscariot, that greedy coward, becomes the undercover agent for the bankers and the preachers. When you read the New Testament, a couple of theories arise as to Judas's motives for betraying Jesus into the hands of the authorities, leading to his arrest, his trial, and subsequent execution on the Good Friday cross. Guthrie has zeroed in on the leading thesis, old-fashioned, compulsive greed. In our reading today, Judas asked the religious leaders, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And he appears to be out for a quick buck. John's gospel, reflecting on a different episode, refers to Judas as a thief. One who regularly skimmed off the till and cooked the books for his own benefit. Greedy coward indeed. A second theory in the gospels is that Judas became possessed, as it were, by a devil, by some dark depravity. It wasn't greed, it was just evil, plain and simple. One of you is the devil, are words recorded in John's gospel. Luke is even more direct as Passover nears and Judas goes to the high priest to negotiate his diabolical deal. Luke 22 reads, then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. I mean, I get it. What could be worse than handing the Son of God over for execution? When you have been His follower, His partner, His disciple, and His friend. And to do it with this prearranged, premeditated signal. A kiss on the cheek. To which Jesus replies, My friend. It appears slithery and satanic, consummate, undilated evil. Theory three, Judas was destined for this role. He was born to play this part in his own damnation with no choice. No off-ramp, no means or ability to deviate from his traitorous fate. John, in the book of Acts, picked the threads of this out. In the face of such an atrocity, they sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's how it had to be. Somebody had to do it. But it all worked out fine in the end. Well, it did, unless you're Judas. Thus, Dante, in his epic tale, The Inferno, has Judas in the lowest pit of hell, the floor of the universe. He is writhing, and his legs are hanging out of Satan's mouth, while Satan chews him like a dog with a bone for all eternity. And we say, good. Well, I have no sympathy for the devil, to quote the Rolling Stones. But let's try to find a little sympathy for Judas today, if we can. Oh my God, you're taking sides with a traitor. No, I am not. Don't you leave here today and say that. More than being a traitor, than being a greedy coward or a demon-possessed evildoer, some hopeless pawn in some twisted divine game, I think Judas above all else has been scapegoated. 
And that is a very specific word. It is a very religious word. Scapegoat. In ancient Judaism, right up until the time of Jesus, on the Day of Atonement, the people would bring two goats to the temple. You want to be goat number two. Goat number one, they sacrifice on the altar as a sacrifice to God so that the priest can enter into the holiest place inside the temple to make his appeal for the people before God. The second goat is the goat that escapes. The scapegoat. After the priest makes his sacrifice, he comes out of the temple and he stands over this little goat. He crosses his hands. He puts his hands on its horns and he symbolically transfers the sins of the people for the entire year over onto this little goat. And then they take this goat to the wilderness and run it off and run it away. Shoe, goat, shoe, go. And the symbolism is that the scapegoat, the escaping goat, takes with him all the sins of the people. So that our society's tensions and our society's sins and our society's rivalries can be diffused for another year and we can live in peace. That's the origin of the whole thing of scapegoating. And we still scapegoat today. The clearest example in my lifetime, and I've shared it with you before, is in the days following September 11th. Do you remember possibly saying something in the last few years to someone like this? It was an awful thing that happened, but never has the country been more unified. Why were we so unified? We had a common enemy. And so all of our internal rivalries and all of our internal competitions and all of our strivings got turned in unison toward an outsider upon which we could place all of the blame and anger for what had gone wrong. Are you following me? Now much of what's happening in our society today is that the enemy has become ourselves. And so now today, when you hear someone say like, well, it's those group of people. If, we, if they weren't here in this country, or if they didn't vote the way they did, everything would be at peace. That is scapegoating. That is an attempt to put all of our frustrations onto a person or onto a group or onto an outsider so that our tribe will no longer be at war with itself. If you're following me, say amen. It's largely how deep South Americans justified and justify racism. Those blacks are the problem, not us. It's how this country exterminated by genocide native tribes, the savage Indians. It's how Hitler in his own day was able to galvanize an entire country convincing them that the European Jew was the problem. Scapegoating, scapegoating, scapegoating from individuals to groups. 
We scapegoat and we attach blame to the other as an explanation for everything that is wrong so that we ourselves don't have to face responsibility for our own contribution to the problems that we have. Now, I can be accused of arguing with the Bible here today. That's happened before. But I don't see 30 pieces of silver, $400, as quite high enough price to sell out the Son of God. And I don't think Judas was any more evil than any of us are capable of being. And not for a minute do I buy the notion that, that prearranged fate, divine providence or otherwise, so dominates a person's life that they are powerless to make their own decisions, to choose their own path, and that they're set free from responsibility for their own choice. So, what do we do with Judas? Is there another possible explanation? Well, maybe there is. In 1983, a strange, strange ancient document materialized on the black market. Said to have been discovered in Egypt in the 1970s, it was finally made into the hands of textual and biblical scholars 13 fragile and fragmented pages carbon dated to about 250 A.D. It has become known as the Gospel of Judas. Theologians and historians knew this document existed because other church fathers referred to it. And now, my God, here was a copy of it. It is not written by Judas. Of course not. It is not Scripture. Of course not. Again, do not leave here today and say, our, our pastor gave the greatest sermon today on the gospel of Judas. No, I am not. It simply offers an early alternative as to why G Judas acted as he did. In 2006, the National Geographic Society published an English translation of the text. It's fragmented, as I said, but it contains a few alleged conversations between Jesus and Judas. Jesus tells his disciple that he, Judas, is set apart for greatness, for a specific task, that he will play the crucial role in ensuring that Jesus' giving of himself actually happens as it should. And then Jesus tells him, you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be hated. You're going to be held responsible. And in their final conversation, Jesus and Judas are sitting beneath the stars and Jesus says to him, you will exceed all others for you will offer me as a sacrifice for the world. Lift up your eyes and see the stars, the star that leads the way is you. So we have this completely unexpected turn of events. Is it inspired scripture? Absolutely not. It simply shows that there was an early community of Christians, some of the earliest Christians that ever lived, constructing a view of Judas very different than our own, different than how history has judged the man. They are saying this, that Judas had a co-conspirator, and that conspirator was Jesus. That Jesus took every step necessary to make sure that his death occurred when it did and where it did. If so, Judas's failure is not a moral one. It's not a greedy one. It's not a satanic one, though all of these can be understood. His failure is giving up on Good Friday and not waiting till Easter Sunday. All these disciples to a man 
believed that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and reveal Himself as the Son of God and the Messiah. And He was going to bring down the corruption of that temple. He was going to kick out the Romans. And God's kingdom was going to come. They believed to a man that Jesus would march into Jerusalem and like Clark Kent coming out of a phone booth, finally show His superpowers. And Jesus, in their estimation, failed. Jesus was overcome. Jesus was beaten. And on Friday night of Holy Week, they all skulk away, afraid, depressed, absolutely crushed. And Judas is so crushed by the events that happen, he takes his own life. And he is inches away, days away, hours away from more love and forgiveness and reinstatement than he could have stood. But he gave up on Friday when Sunday had not yet materialized. So regardless of whatever his motive may have been, whether we speculate or whether we make our best guess, we do know this. Two more sunsets. Hmm. And the story of his life would have been so, so different. Sometimes, it's not a matter of holding on forever. Sometimes, it's not a matter of persevering for years. Sometimes, it just takes three days. Sometimes, just a couple sunsets and sunrises. Sometimes, even if you've done the most awful things with your life, if you can just hold on a little longer, I guarantee you that the God I know and the Christ that I follow offers more grace and forgiveness than you are even capable of understanding or receiving. That applies for routine sinners like me and you, all the way down to those who would deny and betray Christ Himself. And I like to speculate sometimes, if Judas had been in that room on Easter night, when Jesus showed up to his disciples, I believe with all of my heart that he would have went to that man first and put his arms around him, just as he did the rest of them. I can't help but think of the book of Hebrews when I think of Judas Hebrews 10 says this, better things await you, things that will last forever, so do not throw away your confident trust in the Lord. Patient endurance is what you need now. Be not like those who turn to their own destruction. And I'll give the last word to Woody Guthrie. I have hoped so many hopes and dreamed so many dreams. Seen them swept aside by weather, blown away by men, washed away in my own mistakes, that I used to wonder if it wouldn't be better just to haul off and quit. Yet, no matter what has happened to you, no matter how bad the wicked world has hurt you, in the long run there is something gained if we don't lose our hope. The note of hope is the only note that can help us or save us from falling to the bottom of the heap. 
because largely about all a human being is anyway is just a hoping machine. It is Holy Week. Let us not lose our hope on Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday, or Holy Saturday, for Easter Sunday is coming when all things can be made right.